right. Well, welcome. My name is Pastor Tommy. I'm really glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, it's been an exciting morning. There's a lot going on between Advent and James getting baptized um, and just being able to hear James's testimony. It was just really cool um, and it's really powerful. So thank you, James. Where is James? Is he? He's gone. That was it. He just got baptized and left. All right. He's probably, he's probably back there somewhere. Um, well, let's now shift our attention and focus in on God's Word together. Um, we've only got two chapters left in Nehemiah, and in chapter 12, which is where we're going to be looking at this morning, it includes yet another list of people, um, and it's followed by an incredibly loud and joyful celebration and dedication of the completed walls. So as you're reading through Nehemiah from chapter 6, uh, when Israel first completed the wall uh, until now, Israel is kind of riding this spiritual mountaintop experience. Um, these six chapters are basically them experiencing the fruit of everything that they were hoping for, everything that they originally invested in, in everything that they had sacrificed so much for. It, it was God's people finally being rebuilt, and not just physically in the wall, but, but spiritually, all as one giant body, God's people being brought together as God's holy city under God's word with a national spirit of repentance and joining together as one covenant community back together under the rule and reign of God. This is everything that God is about. It's everything uh, that, that Israel has, has worked so hard for. And, and what Israel shows us in chapter 12 is how to respond to all of this, all of this, by taking time to celebrate what God had done in their lives with thanksgiving and worship and praise of God. So pray with me one more time before we jump into the text. Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for giving us um, just reason to celebrate, God. Thank you for giving uh, James a reason to celebrate. Thank you for how we get to celebrate with him, uh, God. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts uh, which are soft to be able to receive your word this morning. And we pray this in the triumphant name of Jesus. Amen. At the beginning of chapter 12, in verses 1 through 26, we see a continuation of a list of names that began in chapter 11. I want to thank Alden for faithfully preaching that text and just showing us how we can be blessed by a simple list of names. So thank you, Alden. Um, the list of names here in chapter 12, the beginning of chapter 12, it represents the Levites and the priests, something that Alden talked a lot about last week. So I, I don't want to re-preach that sermon, but these are people who have been responsible for the teaching of God's word uh, and for serving the nation of Israel by carrying out the religious duties and the operations within the temple. This would include things like preparing and offering sacrifices on behalf of all of Israel, leading musical worship for all of Israel, even guarding the temple itself. And so we spent a lot of time looking closely at names in chapter 7 and 11. Again, thank you, Alden, for doing that. But what I want to do is take a step back and talk about something that we haven't yet as we've looked at these lists, and that is the importance of families within God's family, the importance of families within God's family. For the people of Israel, uh, having an accurate record of names, it, they didn't do it just because they were obsessed with details and needed to write down everything for posterity. Um, we, we know that Nehemiah was someone who was very meticulous. That guy loved the details. Um, he did initiate the census that happens in chapter 7. He probably oversaw the creation of his list, but this is not just like a Nehemiah thing. That's not why it's in the Bible. It's not like Nehemiah snuck it into the Bible. 
Lists like this served Israel by reminding them of where they came from. It was a a genealogy of sorts. It's not like our fascination today with where we've come from. So for us, what we'll do is people will pay really good money, and I'm in this boat as well, we'll pay really good money to take a DNA test through 23andMe or Ancestry to be told our ancestral origins all the way down to like a fraction of a percentage. And some of us have paid this money to be told that we're not actually as Italian as we always thought we were, despite how much we love pasta and oil. And others have discovered parts of their history that they never knew even existed in their lineage. And I'll be honest, this is actually a really cool experience. Um, If you're looking for a gift idea this Christmas, this is not a bad idea for somebody. Caitlin got me this a few years ago for Christmas, and I had always thought leading up to that point that I was 100% Vietnamese, 100% Vietnamese. That's how I like walked through life. And then I learned I'm 50% Chinese. That's very different if you didn't know. Those are two very different places in the world. And so this opened up a whole new world of cultural significance and exploration that I and my family now get to do. It's pretty cool. But what's even cooler about knowing where we come from when we take these tests is that they help us see just how big God is in writing our story and just how big the scale of our story is. As Americans, we struggle with this, specifically as Americans, because I think that we all are kind of taught to believe that we're writing out our stories right now, that despite where we've come from, we can forge our own future, we could rewrite our own history. And there are pros and cons to this, I'm not saying it's inherently bad, but for Israel, there is a sense of of interconnectedness with their family lineage that's lost on many of us here today. There's a sense of grandeur that the people of Israel had as they understood how their life was connected to the lives of people who lived before them, who lived before them, who lived before them, and so on and so forth, where it wasn't just about having an individual relationship with God, but also a legacy of relationship with God. And one of the things that you see in these lists are how God uses families, how God uses families. Families are a means by which God is building his eternal family. And for some of us, we come from a long line of faithful followers of God. Maybe you have that old Bible in your family, and on that cover is a list of names, similar to these lists of names um, in that Bible, letting you know that, hey, this Bible has been handed down from generation to generation. Back in October, my grandfather, Jack Moore, this is a photo of him. Did it make it into the slides? Awesome. Thumbs up. Um, he, He passed away at the ripe old age of 101. So honestly, it was the best case scenario. He was a faithful man of God. He loved Jesus to the bitter end. He was a decorated war hero. He was a handsome dude, too. Look at that picture. He's like chilling in a boat. Looks like an H&M commercial. It's amazing. He ran his race to the end, to the very end. And so the funeral was incredibly encouraging. And leading up to his funerals, uh, I, I, did, I dug out some old letters that, that we had written back and forth, and he had actually shared his testimony with me when I was in college. And, and I was reading it, and, and it was talking about how uh, the strong faith of his mother, so my great-grandmother, uh, and the impact that her faith had on him. And what was amazing was at the funeral, my mother got to share her testimony, and she talked about the strong faith that my grandfather had and the impact that it had on her faith. 
and I'm here today. I mean, I could talk about the incredibly strong faith of my mom and the impact of her faith on me. And Lord willing, by the grace of God, like my daughters, Chloe and Davy, will one day say the same thing about my faith, impacting their faith. And then their sons and daughters will talk about the same thing about them. It, it reminds me of Psalm 145. This should also be on your screen where it says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. God uses families generational discipleship is a means by which God is building his kingdom. It's not the only way, but I do want to take a second to talk to the families. Raising your children to know the Lord, discipling them to walk in his ways is your holy calling as a parent. It's what you've been commissioned to do. And whether you're from a long line of faithful Christians yourself or not, maybe you're starting the family lineage right now, you are participating in a legacy of generational kingdom building that we see right here in Scripture. It was the plan. It was God's plan from the very beginning as God initiates his relationship with his people. You see this in places like Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is at the beginning of his relationship with Israel. And he gives them his commandments, and he says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, take, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. There's, there's no completion to this commission. As long as the heavens are above the earth, this is what we've been called to do. So hear the Lord's exhortation. The greatest investment that you can make into your children, if you're a parent, is piling up holy kindling around them through teaching them God's word. When, when you're walking around the grocery store, when, when you put them down for bed, when they wake up in the morning and then pray that the Holy Spirit would ignite that kindling into a roaring fire and bring them into saving faith in him that James is communicating to us this morning of what's happened in his life. And so be encouraged, moms and dads, this is God's plan um, for families. It, it, it's anchored in the gospel, and it's a beautiful calling, but, but it's by no means easy. So you will have to bear with the same things that the Lord has had to bear with you in. And some of those things like having grumpy mood springs and having a rebellious and hard heart and being arrogant, being foolish, being disrespectful, being skeptical all the time. Like the list goes on and on and on. But we've been charged to do it. And one of the things we see here is that history has shown us that God has been faithful to those who are faithful to this task. And lists like this show the inter intergenerational faithfulness to God, which we see in this text, are evidence of this truth. Now, some of us are hearing this, and we are the first people in our families who are following Christ. If this is you, can you raise your hand? Like, if your parents are not Christian... Can you raise your hands? Keep them up, keep them up. Hold them up. Nice and high, nice and high. Look at that. 
That's awesome. Like, that's in- incredible. I-, I want to encourage you in this as well. Um, families within God's family have to start somewhere at some time. And maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't want to be married, and I don't want to have kids. That's fair. Uh, biological families are a picture of God's family, uh, which you are actually all a part of, whether or not you have children or not. And within the family of God, there are multiple generations of faith. This is what we've experienced here as a church. And I hope what you hear is an encouragement to consider investing into people who are spiritually younger than you. If you've got white hairs in your head, consider, uh, and maybe you consider yourself older, maybe find someone with less white hair in their hair who don't consider themselves older yet. Like, I'm in that camp, right? I've got a few white hairs. I don't consider myself older quite yet. I would love to get coffee with you. If you are someone who's out of college, maybe consider grabbing coffee with someone who is in college. If you are in college, maybe you go to the dining commons with an underclassman. Maybe this means investing in the high schoolers that are a part of our church, or maybe investing in Mercy House Kids that's happening downstairs. Again, here's Psalm 145. Let one generation commend God's works to another and declare his mighty acts. If you're already doing this, I just I want to encourage you, and, and, and I hope that you are encouraged, because like parents, you who are making disciples will need to continue being faithful and endure with patience in the same things that our Father in heaven has been patient with us in. Spiritual growth and progress is slow. It is. And so I pray for the steadfastness and patience of your disciple-making. As you make disciples, as you share the gospel, help people walk in the ways of God, know that you are part of something way much bigger than just you. You're a part of something that is a building project that didn't just take two months to complete like the wall around Jerusalem, but God's project to build for himself a kingdom of priests, which first began with the very first breath of Adam and is still being worked on today and will be brought to completion in the day that Jesus returns. That is the great project that we are invited into. And so this is the last list of names in Nehemiah. So we're done with lists for now. Maybe we'll do chronicles in the spring. I'm not sure yet. So here's one last exhortation and encouragement for you. When lists like this come up in your reading plan, don't skip them. Don't skip them. Take time. Struggle through the names Appreciate the diversity of God's people, the normalness of God's people, the sacrifices of God's people, the faithfulness of God's people, and let them be reminders that you are not alone. You are not doing something that is brand new, but but you follow a long lineage of people who have been faithful to God, who have risked and sacrificed and and stepped out in, in, in steps of faith to follow God. And then be encouraged that God has been faithful through generations among all the nations. And so let lists like these encourage you to to help in the building of God's family. And whether that's through your biological and your nuclear family, but also in your spiritual family here at Mercy House. So that's the first half of the text. The second half 
and we're, we're going through verse 43 here, it is outlined like this. The priests and the Levites and leaders all gather together. They plan a huge celebration in order to dedicate the completed walls to God. They split up into two groups, uh, and, and, and they march all around in different directions around the city, and then they converge at the temple, and they finish off their walk with a huge, loud party. That's what's happening in these verses. Let's read in verse 27 now. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages uh, of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, and the singers, for the singers, had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. What you see in these verses is an intentional gathering of God's people all together, specifically here the Levites and, and those who would be in charge of the musical worship within God's temple. And what they're about to do uh, is, is dedicate the newly built walls to the Lord. This isn't far off from our baby dedications that we do here at Mercy House from time to time. And what's happening when we dedicate a baby to the Lord, it's not like a mystical ceremony. It's a time when the parents will come up to the front. They will typically hold their children. What they're doing is they're declaring their intention to raise this child in the ways of God. They're making it publicly known that in so much as they can, they will submit themselves and that child under the authority of God. That before that child is their child, uh, he or she is God's child. And then we as a community join in. We, we affirm them in this desire. We encourage them. And then we also dedicate ourselves to supporting that family in their endeavor. For, for Israel, the dedication is a declaration and an, a, an acknowledgement that before those walls were their walls, they were God's walls. And for as long as they're using those walls for their own protection, Israel is dedicating themselves as a city to be God's holy city. They are quite literally submitting the very stones of their city to the authority of God. Since Caitlin, my wife and I have been married, we've lived in four different places. Um, and, and each time we move into a new place, we take time to pray over it. We usually invite others to come over, we usually share a meal with one another, and we'll pray something to this effect. We'll say, God, this is your house. These are your walls. This is your living room. This is your dining room table. And so may they all be used to bless others, to feed people's bellies, but also their souls. And may this place be a respite for people who are weary, a place of peace and calm through the stormy seasons of life. May you protect this house from the enemy, and may the time that is spent here, the things that we do, the songs that we sing, the, even the thoughts that we have, be honoring and glorifying to you. We dedicate this home to you. Amen. That's what we've done in each of the homes that we've moved to. This is effectively what Israel is doing. And it isn't a stuffy, long, religious ceremony. It's a party. Look at verse 27 again. They gather, they're gathering everyone together to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. 
the way that they're dedicating their city is with a joyous, loud celebration. They actually bust out the symbols for this. If you didn't know, like, symbols are not melodic instruments. They don't sound pretty. They exist literally to make a ton of noise, right? Like, <laughs> there's nothing pretty about that. I didn't mean to break it, but I wanted to make sure it was loud. <laughs> They use symbols. Symbols exist literally to make as much noise as possible. They are not beautiful. They are just loud. And so they're walking around slamming symbols and singing out to the Lord. Loud, holy celebrations can be godly experiences. They can be. And this is tough, a tough thing to say in a college town. There's a reason they call UMass ZooMass. I lived in Southwest uh, when the Red Sox won the World Series and they reversed the curse and flaming couches came out of the towers and the riot police came. Like, that's not what I'm talking about when I talk about holy celebrations. But we also must not swing in the opposite direction and, and think that celebrations are unholy or that Christian celebrations should be quiet and quaint and pleasant. We must not be like David's wife, Michal. Do you guys remember her? If you remember her reaction to David's joyful celebration, this is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. It's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. As the Ark of the Covenant was being returned to Israel, this is what happens. Verse 12, and it was told, and it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark to ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in, in her heart. So that's tough. What's happening here is David is celebrating his heart out. So much so that his wife is like, oh, David, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? And I imagine that where her heart is coming from is thinking that, look, that is undignified for a king to do. Like, there are times where you need to be serious. And I would agree. I will give her that. But this is not that time. The Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God for Israel, which was lost and then was found and then returned back home uh, to the city, to the people of Israel, like, this is a big moment. This is like the prodigal son returning home moment, hence the killing of the fat and calf. Every six feet, the Ark traveled. This is a moment where you finally find that one lost sheep. And David knew this, and that's why in verse 14 it says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. That's a lot of hard dancing. And as we turn back to this celebration here in Nehemiah 12, it's really hard not to draw some very significant similarities. So the destruction of Jerusalem's walls, the, the capturing and the exile of God's people was very similar to the ark being lost, at least in its spiritual and emotional implications on God's people. Israel, in both instances, were experiencing very broken relationship with God. 
Because of their sinfulness and their waywardness, they had abandoned God in, uh, and his ways, and, and they were experiencing some of the repercussions of that. But then, in these first 11 chapters of Nehemiah, which tells us the story of them returning to the Lord and rebuilding the walls that had fallen as a result of their sinfulness, then experiencing the miraculous presence of God in chapter 8 with the reading of God's word, leading them to spiritual revival on a national scale. Like, the presence of the Lord had been reunited with God's people once again as they are God's holy city. This is like the ark being found and brought back home. This was a time for them like it was for their great, 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 great grandfather David where they ought to sing and celebrate and dance with all their might. And so they do. Let's read on. Verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priest's sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachar, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azrael, Milalai, Gilalai, Mai, uh, Nathanael, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra, the scribe, went before them. And the fountain gate, sorry, at the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall before the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Elohim, Messiah, Minamim, Micaiah, Elonai, Zechariah, and Hananiah with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eliezer, Uzi, Jehohanan, Melchijah, Elam, Ezer, and the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. So this celebration is a mobile celebration. It's a parade. It's a parade of parades. Nehemiah gathers all the singers and all the leaders, and he divides them into two choirs, and they march around the city in opposite directions. They are singing their hearts out with all of their instruments, with the cymbals, and that's what they do. This is an incredibly powerful moment for Israel. It's a powerful moment for Nehemiah. The, the route that he takes on this parade would no doubt give him flashbacks to the very first night in Jerusalem. Do you remember that? All the way back, chapter 2, verse 12, Nehemiah arrives in the city and he secretly travels around those destroyed walls. He goes in the dark so no one can see him. He's assessing some of the damage. Parts of that damage is so severe that he has to get off his horse and walk it all the while probably praying for the incredibly difficult task ahead, not having any idea what he was about to be in for or how in the world God would actually rebuild this city. And here he is now. 
He's not alone and in the dark. This is broad daylight. Him and his band of brothers singing praises to, to the God that was faithful to rebuild his people from the rubble and the ashes, which he had just walked through against all odds. And they're not walking around the walls like Nehemiah had walked around the rubble. They mounted on top of it. Look at verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. I am positive that this was intentional because he mentions it again that they were on top of the wall. Do you remember the opposition in chapter 4 to the work? This should be on your screens as well. This is in the beginning of chapter 4. Now, when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it will, he will break down their stone wall. Hey, Nehemiah, how do you want to dedicate this wall? Maybe just gather around, lay some hands on the, the stones there? No, we're going to form two massive choirs, and we're going to load them with all of our leaders, and we're going to climb up on top of this wall. Okay, so just you and Ezra? No, everyone everyone's going to get up on top of this wall, and we're going to march on top of the wall. You know, that wall that they, they said would break down if a fox climbed up on it, we're, we're all going to get up onto this wall. And then let's sing at the top of our lungs about how our God indeed revived these stones out of the heaps of rubbish and ash. Talk about a triumphant moment. Being able to see and feel under your feet the fruit of having faith in God, and seeing God win. Like, that's a victory lap I wish I could have been a part of with all of Israel. As they marched and gave thanks to God and sang songs of worship, it wasn't just a deeply powerful and moving moment for Nehemiah, but it was for everyone. As they walked on the portions of the wall that they literally bled and sweat to build, as they passed over the gates which they had sacrificed and risked everything in order to set into place. Mercy House, take time to celebrate what the Lord has done in your lives. The things that He has enabled you to accomplish, the victories, both large and small, that He has allowed you to experience. Not like this world should we celebrate, not gathering glory for ourselves, honoring ourselves, but giving praise and glory and thanksgiving to God. Did you get a new job? Praise God and celebrate. Did a child just complete their dance recital, which I was just at last night? Like, praise God and celebrate. Are you graduating in the spring Praise God and celebrate. Has God answered your prayers for sleep and rest this week? Did he answer your prayers to finish a project? Did, did, did he answer your prayers to get through a hard season? Like, stop, gather people together, praise God, and celebrate. It is false humility and honestly dishonoring to God to not take time to account for what he has done in our lives. 
to make light of his grace and blessing. Like imagine if Israel was, was trying to be falsely humble, right? And they're like, it's not that big of a deal. You know, we just rebuilt a couple walls. Anyone could have done that. Just got to put some hard work into it and it's going to pay off. That's not honoring to God. That's incredibly prideful. And that's not in scale with God's miraculous participation in all of it. And so they celebrate. And they celebrate big. And, and not just for the physical accomplishment on the wall itself. you got to imagine, as they are walking uh, around, as they march on top of the walls, they are looking down, and they are seeing the people of God. And they are seeing them gathered together within the now standing walls for the first time in generations. And they weren't exiled anymore. They weren't enslaved by another nation. They weren't wandering around aimlessly. They were home. They made it home with God, with one another. God did it. He rebuilt his people, and that is why they celebrated. That's why we celebrate. If you're a Christian, you have been rescued from exile. You have been freed from slavery, slavery to sin, slavery to the will of Satan and others, slavery to the expectations of your parents and our culture, slavery to the darkness of this world, and you have been brought, delivered into the kingdom of light. And not as a tourist, you have been brought home. David danced with all his might when the ark, which represented God's presence, was brought back to the people. Nehemiah and Israel here celebrate when God's presence rebuilt God's people into this holy city. We celebrate today because God's spirit dwells not in a fancy finite box which can be, be misplaced, but inside of each and every one of us. And we celebrate because God's holy city is not confined to stones and mortar which can crumble and fall, but an everlasting eternal kingdom which we are all citizens of until the end of time. The ark would eventually be lost. Uh, the walls would once again be destroyed, but God's heavenly kingdom, which houses his eternal presence, will stand forever. And that's what we are invited in. That's what communion reminds us of each week. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Communion is a reminder of our eternal citizenship within God's holy city. Amen. It's a reminder that through Jesus' death, he has purchased us a place at his table as a friend and as a son and a daughter, as a member within God's eternal family. The appropriate response as we remember this, as we remember God's goodness and faithfulness, the response to the work that he's accomplished in our lives, the spiritual rebuilding of our souls, the repentance and the reunion which God has purchased with his blood, the appropriate response to all of this is celebration and praise with loud, joyful singing. Look at that last verse in the passage today, verse 43. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced 
and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. The call to action this morning is for us to worship God, to make a joyful noise. And I want to challenge you this morning because I think sometimes people will say, I'm not really a singer. It's not really my jam. And I was the same way, especially when I was younger in my faith. Let me tell you, I didn't like miraculously wake up one day with a really good singing voice and some singing confidence. That never happened. I'm still waiting for that to happen. But when God and what he has done in our lives is really understood, when we value it for what it is, when we really take time to meditate on the radical nature of God's immeasurable love for us, if we can hoop and holler while watching a football game, if we can jump and scream at a concert and honor accomplishments that have nothing to do with us, then we at least know that we have the capacity to be affected in that way. And so may we, as a church, be affected by the gospel, be affected by God's word. And with our affections, our emotions, our feelings, may we worship God loudly with all of our might. This is what Christmas is all about, anticipating and celebrating the source of greatest hope and joy. As Christians, we should be celebrating the most and the hardest during this season. And I don't mean just singing Christmas songs for the sake of the Christmas songs. Like notice in this passage, the parade marches around the wall in two directions, and then in verse 40, they converge on the house of God. The parade was not just about the experience of the parade, but what it pointed to. The joy of this season is not about this season, but what this season points to. If we get the holiday blues after Christmas and New Year's, it's probably because we've been trying to ride the feels of the season. But Christian, do not escape into the music and the lights or try to lose yourself in having holiday cheer. We don't sing happy birthday because it's a good song in and of itself. That would be crazy. If you sat there just saying happy birthday. No one does that. We sing happy birthday to honor the person whose birthday it is. We sing for them. And so very lastly, Mercy House, I want to challenge you this Advent season with probably what is the best challenge there is. Celebrate and worship God. Celebrate hard. Invite others into the celebration. Spare no expense. Crank the volume. As Christians, let's show the valley what the gospel means to us by how we respond to it with joyful celebration that is heard for miles away. Let's pray. Father, you give us reason to rejoice and celebrate. God, we confess that uh, we're not always great at this. Maybe we celebrate in the wrong ways, God, honoring man, honoring self, honoring things, while not giving thanksgiving to you, the provider of all things, the sustainer of life. God, maybe we don't celebrate enough, Lord. Maybe we aren't affected by what you've done in our lives. And so we pray, God, I pray, that we would be able to have eyes to see just how intimately um, connected you are to our lives and how you bless us in so many ways that we see and we don't see. And Father, I pray that as we are in this season of Advent, there are lots of things that um, can take our attention, God, 
and lots of ways that we can celebrate that are of the world. God, help us to celebrate in a holy way like your people did when you built the wall and you built your people and you brought your people together. Help us to reflect on the many blessings, the spiritual blessings that we have from you. And Father, I pray now, God, as we respond, um, as we take communion and experience and remember the fellowship that we have with you in your kingdom, God, help us then as the music plays to respond with loud, joyful rejoicing and singing and praising you for what you've done, God. Father, it's all about you. God, it's all about you. As we sing these songs this season, help us, Lord, keep our attention and our focus on you. We love you, God. Thank you for first loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.